All right, so we are in hermeneutics. This is the 10th lecture, and we are going to be continuing the grammatical principle of hermeneutics. I will just say this at the outset uh, as we're getting started here. Some have asked me about punctuation, and uh, what, what about punctuation? Because I haven't made a deal about that. You may have noticed that. But uh, the reason I haven't mentioned punctuation, the role of punctuation, is because as far as biblical Hebrew and Greek is concerned, the punctuation was not in the inspired manuscripts. And so, thank you, brother. So, this might strike us as odd. You know, biblical Hebrew didn't have punctuation or vowels. And we might think, how on earth did that work? Well, if you understand Hebrew, the nature of the language, it's it's not so unusual. In fact, it's not uncommon today to see a Hebrew text without uh, vowels. But uh, I guess they were very adept at reading that way. Greeks were using punctuation at the time of Christ, and yet there's no reason to believe that the original New Testament manuscripts would have been written with punctuation. Most letters at the time were written with a scriptio continua, or continuous script, and it looks something like this, Greek manuscript up there, if you could see that. In fact, it was all caps. Just see, can you read this? Not so difficult, really. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You know, it's, it's something we're not used to, and I thank God for punctuation. It certainly makes our job of reading, and most ultimately reading audibly, it makes it easier but anyhow, that is why I'm not making a big deal of punctuation. In fact, when I preach, you won't hear me say, look at the exclamation point. <laughs> I, won't, I won't do that. Now, we use context to derive an exclamation point or a quotation mark or a question mark and so forth. All right, let's begin with prayer and we'll dive in here. Father, we thank you for this morning and we ask for your strength. We ask for your help. We pray, Lord, that you would give us minds to focus on your truth and give me the ability to explain these things clearly. I pray that no one would be overwhelmed with the details we look at, but rather, Lord, this would be encouraging to even show us some of the things that we need to work on and be mindful of as we study your word and the way you intended it to be read and understood. So, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may think that studying grammar is uh, just about as exciting as getting a root canal or something like that done. It's just not appealing to you. And, and so therefore, why on earth are we taking the time to examine this this morning? Well, I, I want to assure you that a biblical perspective on language and grammar will bring you to feel differently about this. Remember, God, for one, has designed the rules of grammar. He gave them to us. He intends that we follow them if we are to discover what he meant by what he said. The New Testament scholar Andy Nicelli put it this way, God chose to reveal himself to us with grammar. So paying attention to grammar is a way to pay attention to God. The more accurately you understand grammar, the more accurately you can understand God. Sounds a little strong, right? There's a lot of truth to that. And I, and I believe the converse is also true that if we do not take grammar seriously, we are choosing not to pay careful attention to what God has said. 
at least we may be guilty of that, in neglecting the grammatical principle. So like it or not, a knowledge of grammar is directly proportional to a proper knowledge of God in Scripture. And let's just consider then what we should know about grammar. We don't have to be grammarians. That's not the point of this, this principle in hermeneutics. But we should know or endeavor to know the basic elements of grammar. And then we want to know how to identify these elements in any text. And so last week, what we were looking at is the basic elements of grammar, how to identify them. And we liken them to the building blocks of language, these parts of speech. And there are many different parts of speech. Of course, we have nouns, articles, pronouns, adjectives, verbs, adverbs, prepositions, conjunctions. There's actually more parts of speech, but these are the ones we identified. And hopefully, in the course of talking about these, in the context of Scripture, you were able to see how that every single word of God has a unique and special function. It has a purpose. When you approach the Word of God in this way, you see that even articles, even the, the prepositions, even the tiniest words play a part in the meaning of Scripture. Now, by the way, I'm not suggesting that all these parts of speech that we discussed last week are common in every language. I know Brother Victor had mentioned how, for instance, in Russian, the language uses no article. And you will find that in Hebrew and in Greek, there is no indefinite article. There's only a definite article. But the fact of the matter is that whether you're reading the Word of God in Russian or in Hebrew or in Greek or whatever language, you will find that context or some other means is going to identify to you whether a noun is indefinite or definite. And so the the same rules all apply for certain, even though there are some differences here and there. So we saw the parts of speech, and then we discussed how that the parts of speech combine to form what we call units of speech. These would be phrases, clauses, and sentences. And I just want to say something briefly for the units of speech, because this is where we are going to be working today somewhat. Phrases are groups of words that contain no verb. So we talk about the grace of God. There's no verb there, so it's just a phrase. Or in the beginning, that's a prepositional phrase. There's no verb there. But a clause is a group of words with a verb. So obey your parents, Ephesians 6.1. That is a clause. Obey is the verb there. And, And by the way, that's an independent clause. It's a standalone thought. But if we say, for this is right... That's also a clause because there's a verb there. There's a a being verb, is, for this is right. And yet that clause is not independent. It's dependent. If I say for this is right, you say, what do you mean? It's not a standalone thought. But these are both clauses. A sentence, lastly, is a group of words containing one or more clauses that expresses a complete thought. So Psalm 1016, the Lord is king forever and ever. Or God created the heavens and the earth. That's a complete thought. If we said, if anyone wishes to come after me, Matthew 16, 24, that's not a sentence. That's not a complete thought. If anyone wishes to come after me, what? Right? Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a complete thought. That's a sentence. So then we moved on to sentence structure. And we want to be able to approach any text of Scripture and analyze that text 
in terms of its parts, the parts of speech, the clauses, the phrases that make up that text. So when it comes to analyzing a sentence structure, we said there's two basic parts that you can find in any sentence. And of course you have, we could diagram this simple sentence, Jesus is Lord, this way. The subject is Jesus. The focus is on Jesus. And the predicate is Lord. That, that's the predicate there. The predicate is everything that is being predicated about the subject, in this case, Jesus. Jesus is Lord. But we can take that predicate and we can break that predicate down in terms of a verb and an object. And what you will find is that in any language, anywhere around the world that we're aware of, all, the, all languages use a subject, verb, object combination. Now, not, again, not all sentences will have an object. You know, if, if you have a transitive verb or something, then you would. But any language you study around the world will have a subject, verb, and an object. Not in the same order. They're in different orders. But you will find that this is true to all languages. And so when we're studying sentences in the Bible, we should be aware of where is the subject? What's the verb? What's the object? And so we can do that. Let's go back to then our thoughts on sentence structure. Let's remind ourselves the subject that we're looking for in any text of scripture is the main focus of the sentence. It's what's performing the action, or of course, if the verb is passive, would be receiving the action. And then the verb. Verbs are exciting in scripture because that's where the action is. A verb describes an action or a condition, could be a state of being, about the subject, relating to the subject. So we could say, God created, that's an action verb, right? The, the kind of verb, that would be an action verb, God is creating. Or we could take that same idea and render it with a state of being verb. God is creator. And we also discussed a little bit about the tense, but I did skip over this quickly in light of the, the time and everything. If you look in your Bible to Second Peter I thought we could compare here a couple interesting texts that show us just an example. I mean, there's, there's thousands we could give of where tense is very relevant, of course, in Scripture. It's always relevant. But Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter is warning, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Do you see a pattern here of future tense verbs? They will do this. Peter continues to warn us. It's interesting if you flip over to Jude 4, the book of Jude, just before Revelation there in your Bible, just a few books over to the right. Jude, there's only one chapter, verse 4. Jude says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before him marked out for condemnation. And the interesting point I'm making is that many scholars recognize that Jude, there is debate here, but Jude was written after Second Peter. They share a lot of similarities because 
Peter, in 2 Peter 2, is emphasizing what will happen. These false teachers will enter into the church, and Jude is saying they have crept in. They have come. Interesting how much tense can tell us or suggest to us from the word of God. So pay attention to tense. And I would caution you that in Greek especially, tense is not simply related to time, but the kind of action. And so you might hear from time to time, if you're listening or you're reading a commentary, uh, scholars will talk about the aorist tense. It's a tense in the Greek that refers to a kind of action, a completed action, but generally action that is viewed as a whole, punctiliar, as a point in time. And there are exceptions to that rule, but another interesting tense that you'll find throughout the Bible is uh, in the Greek is a perfect tense describing a past action. Now, it's completed action, but there's a view of ongoing results of that same action. And so writers will use this perfect tense in distinction from the aorist tense to convey certain nuances about doctrine or what's happened in, in the text that they're, they're wanting to emphasize or stress. All that to say, pay attention to tense. We did discuss mood. Mood relates the manner of an action, and we discussed the difference between the indicative mood and the subjunctive mood and the imperative mood. So we're not going to go into all that voice. I did not, we did not get to voice. So this is where we did not get any further than from last week. The voice of a verb relates the doer or receiver of the action. In the active voice, the subject performs the action. And so let's consider a couple examples from Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 2. You formerly walked. You formerly walked according to the course of this world. You is the subject and the verb is walked. You walked according to the course of this world. God's saying you as the subject, you did that. You performed that action. We were just like everyone else before God regenerated us. But the passive voice involves the subject receiving the action. So if we go down to verse 8 in Ephesians 2, we read, For by grace you have been saved. Saved here is a passive voice verb. You, the subject, have been saved. You were receiving the action. Big difference. You didn't save yourself. You were saved through faith. And then the context makes this plain too, emphasizing the passive nature of our salvation in this context at least, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So that's the voice. We want to be mindful when we are looking at verbs. Don't just notice the verb, the, the type of verb in action or state of being verb, but pay attention to its tense, its mood, its voice. And verbs, uh, of course, can also be modified by adverbs. So be aware of adverbs there as well. Something else that I should mention about verbs I'm not trying to kill anybody or overload you with TMI, but there are what we would call verbals. So these are verb-like words in your Bible. And a couple examples of these verb-like words that convey verbal ideas would be a participle. A participle is a verbal idea that participates, hence the term participle, it participates in the action or state of the verb it modifies. It typically appears in our English translation with an ing ending. So we see them all the time. We use them all the time. You may not know it's a participle, but I'm just throwing this out there. This is what that is. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says, Working, that's a participle, working night and day 
so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So working is a verbal idea. It's participating in the action of the main verb in this statement. And where is the main verb in this verse? Proclaimed. We as the subject, Paul's saying we proclaim the gospel of God to you, but the participle working is modifying, it's participating in this idea of how he was proclaiming the gospel. Working night and day. So those are participles. Another verbal to be aware of in Scripture is an infinitive. An infinitive is a verbal idea that is not limited to any person, time, or place. In English, we prefix infinitives with the preposition to. So here's a great example. Philippians 1.21. Probably my favorite verse. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is an infinitive. There's this verbal idea, but here notice it is functioning as a subject. To live is Christ. And likewise, to die, another infinitive, functioning here as a subject in the sentence, but it's a verbal idea. To die is gain. So uh, participles, infinitives, these are verbal ideas important to be aware of. In the Bible, and another reason I mention this is because, I'll just throw this out there, that at least as a general rule, participles and infinitives convey subordinate ideas to the main verb. So I could give you an example in First Peter, maybe we'll get a chance to look at this later, but First Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, what's interesting is in those two verses, there's two verbs, there's two actual verbs. You love him, you rejoice in him. That's the two main ideas of verses 8 and 9, 1 Peter 1. But there's several other participles there that are conveying subordinate ideas, modifying the idea of love to Christ, joy in Christ. So we'll see how that works. I'm just saying participles and infinitives play a subordinate role typically to the main verb, but you need to be aware of them. So that's verbs. Subject, we have subject. Verb, and then we said object is another principal part in any sentence, typical sentence structure we're analyzing. And the object is describing a person or thing directly receiving the action of the verb or indirectly affected by the action of the verb. So there's a couple examples of popular objects. The direct object is the person or thing directly receiving the action of the verb. Where do we see this in the Bible? So many places. John 3.16. God so loved the world. So again, we don't have to be a grammarian to think this way, but if we do think in terms of grammar, it helps us think more carefully. The world is receiving God's love. The world is the direct object directly receiving the action of the verb, in this case, the love of God. An indirect object would be a person or thing indirectly affected by the action of the verb, and the indirect object receives the direct object itself. So we could look at 1 John 5.11. God has given us eternal life. What is God giving in 1 John 5.11? He's giving eternal life. This life here is the direct object, but he's giving this life, the direct object, to us, the indirect object. So we should be aware of the object as well. Now I'll just mention this too. With regards to analyzing sentence structure, 
you want to take note to identify prepositional phrases. Prepositional phrases modify another word or phrase. So we mentioned prepositions a little bit last week in our parts of speech. But prepositional phrases, which are really a preposition and then the object that preposition modifies there, these prepositional phrases may function to describe many things. <laughs> so I've listed some of those there for you. I think there's 11 there. Location, proximity, association, possession, source, separation, direction, means or agency, basis, purpose, time. A, a little phrase, or these prepositional phrases can perform a wide variety of functions in a sentence. And so when we come to them, rather than passing over them, we want to think a little bit about what is the function that this phrase, this is a group of words again without a verb, but it's a group of words with a preposition and some other object, but it's modifying another word or phrase in our sentence. And we want to ask how. So when we're working with prepositional phrases, this is what we want to do. First thing we want to do in our text is locate the preposition. And so let's consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. There's three prepositions here, actually from the Greek text. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the way, in of there, it would, the of there and the of in the second line of the Spirit are actually not prepositions in the Greek because they're indicated by the genitive case. Okay, some of you know another language, may be familiar how case works and something like that. But just, all right, for simplicity, consider there's three prepositions in the Greek here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by, second preposition, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to, third preposition, obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Well, we want to think about these prepositions, and so we want to locate the object of them. What are these prepositions pointing us to according to the well in the first case God's foreknowledge the foreknowledge of God the Father that's the first object of the first preposition then the spirit sanctifying work in the second case and in the third case it's obedience to Jesus Christ once we've done that we want to ask ourselves how the prepositional phrase then is functioning we need to determine how are these phrases functioning with regards to the sentence. And if you looked at the previous verse, you would see that Peter is describing how it is that God's people that he's writing to have been chosen. In fact, in the New American Standard, at least, it's the very last word of verse 1 there, chosen. So all these prepositions, according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. These phrases are all modifying the word chosen. They are telling you how God has chosen us. In the first case, we would be seeing, according to, is describing the standard, the basis of God's choice. This is very important. God's choice of you is not based upon your performance, upon your works, but upon the foreknowledge of God, which was his own gracious choice, of his own gracious merciful character, his loving kindness. We were chosen, secondly, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This prepositional phrase is giving us means or instrumentality. And I think from that we can infer that God's choice is effected out in his people by the power of the Spirit, drawing us out of sin and to himself, making us more like Christ. And of course, the purpose of God's choice of his people is really described in this third prepositional phrase, 
to for the purpose of obeying Jesus Christ and being sprinkled with his blood. This is how God has chosen his people. Is that important to know? Yeah, absolutely. And these, these are prepositional phrases. And this is something that I know is tedious. It's technical. It's not the stuff that we maybe enjoy talking about. But my job, again, as a pastor is not to just cherry pick the Bible and give you all the exciting stories and do the fun stuff. My job is to plow and work hard and try to equip you so you can do what it is I do to teach yourself the Bible and to learn the word of God. And this is one way you can do it. So be aware of prepositions and prepositional phrases and determine how these prepositional phrases are functioning. What are they modifying? How are they modifying another word or phrase in the sentence you're studying? Another thing to be aware of, I'll just add one more, as far as the sentence structure is concerned, as we're analyzing sentences, is conjunctions. A conjunction, we said, is a word that joins together other words, phrases, or clauses, and shows how they are related. And there's a couple different kinds of conjunctions, or I would say categories of conjunctions here. Coordinating conjunctions connect words, phrases, or clauses of equal rank or emphasis. Typically described as and, but, or. Uh, one example would be Mark 1.15. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. That these ideas, these two imperatives, repent and believe, are equally stressed. Of course, they're, they're equally important. You, don't, you can't have one without the other, but that's the idea. There's an equality here. These are equal ideas being joined together. Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away. And there is a coordinating conjunction. It's joining equal ideas, equal words in that case. At least those words are being given equal weight or emphasis. But in addition to coordinating conjunctions, the other category is subordinating conjunctions. And these introduce a subordinating clause. Very important because of everything we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. So please don't miss this. Please pay attention. A lot of times a subordinating conjunction will be sense, although, because, if, there's many. Here's an example from John eleven forty. Jesus said, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. If you believe. Now, the word if there is a subordinating conjunction. So it's signaling, it's introducing to us a subordinating clause, which in this case is are, are the words, if you believe. That's a subordinating clause. It's what we would call a conditional clause. And it's conditioned, or it's conditioning rather, the next clause. You will see the glory of God. See that? You will see the glory of God. That is the that is a main clause, or at least that's an independent clause. It's a standalone thought. You will see the glory of God. But Jesus doesn't just say you will see the glory of God. He conditions that upon if you believe. So we're using or paying attention to subordinating conjunctions to think about the sentence structure and how it's functioning, what God is saying. What did he mean by what he said, the way he said it? Now, Conjunctions have a lot of different functions. This is not near exhaustive, but I put several of these up there for you with different examples of different texts of Scripture so that you can see when we come to the Bible, we want to be asking ourselves, wherever we see a conjunction, what is the function of that conjunction? What is it doing? 
I am the true vine, Jesus said, and my Father is the vine dresser. There's, that's a simple coordinating conjunction. It's just joining two statements of equal emphasis. Disjunction would be, uh, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. There's a disjunction here in thought. Uh, be kind, here's a comparison, be kind to one another just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Contrast, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Explanation, therefore, I came to set a man against his father. Inference, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We could go on, but I think you get the point that conjunctions serve a lot of different purposes in Scripture. So when we see a preposition signaling a prepositional phrase or a conjunction, we want to ask, how are those parts of speech functioning? What are they doing? And especially with conjunctions, because if, if it's a subordinating conjunction, it could be giving us any number of subordinate ideas in the text. And by you figuring out how that clause is being used, you're going to understand the text better and you're going to be able to explain it better to other people. So we've seen from a sentence structure, we're going to try to pay attention. Where's the subject? Where's the verb? Really, the first thing you can do when you're analyzing a sentence is find the verbs. Because if you find the verbs, you can isolate the clauses. Remember, clauses are groups of words containing a verb. And then there's the object. When you see, does the verb have an object, whether direct or indirect? And then look for prepositions. Find prepositional phrases and also conjunctions. Now, finally, before we get into grammatical analysis... The last thing I want to do is discuss main and subordinate clauses. So what's a clause? Remember what a clause is? It's a group of words that contains a verb. Phrases are a group of words without a verb. Clauses are a group of words with a verb. So anytime we're going to a text of scripture and we're looking for clauses, we're going to look for the verbs. And we're going to isolate these clauses in terms of the verb. So there's two different kinds or categories of clauses, I should say. First is an independent clause, or we would call this the main clause in a sentence. This is so important. Okay. Now, again, maybe somebody's like, I, Pastor Nathan, I just don't see it. You know, just maybe we'll put this on the web, and you listen to it, and, and look at your Bible, and just try it, and see how meaningful this changes the way you approach the Bible, and you start to think about it more carefully. But this, this is kind of where rubber meets the road kind of stuff. We're looking for the independent clause. What's the main idea in a statement, in a, in a sentence? This is a clause that is not subordinate to another clause, but it expresses a complete thought, a standalone idea, hence the term independent clause. Example would be even John 11.35 that we mentioned last week. Jesus wept. Now that's a very short clause. It's a short sentence. I believe it's the shortest verse in our Bible, but it's an independent clause. It's a standalone thought because there's a subject and a predicate there. If we said Jesus wept because he was grieved at heart, that would still be a complete sentence. But if we said Jesus wept because, because he was grieved, because he was grieved would be a subordinate clause. That couldn't stand alone. If I just told you because he was grieved, you'd say what? But if I said Jesus wept because he was grieved, oh, now I understand. So the independent clause, or the main clause, is Jesus wept. 
a dependent clause or subordinate clause is a clause that is subordinate to another clause. It expresses a thought that is incomplete. It cannot stand on its own. It is grammatically dependent on a main clause, on an independent clause. John 14, 19. Jesus said, because I live. Well, wait a second. Because I live, that's it? Period? Because I live what? Right? That's a dependent clause. It's subordinate to another idea. And in this case, it's the very next clause. You will live also. Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. Because I live is giving you the reason, the ground for which we have hope of living. So look for main and subordinate clauses. Look for independent and dependent clauses. A subordinate clause may function as either a noun, an adjective, or adverb. I'll just mention this. Uh, So these are clauses, again, that are grammatically dependent on a main clause in the sentence, and they can serve many different functions, and I'll give you some examples. A noun clause functions as a noun. That's kind of obvious. Whatever is not from faith. That's a clause, because there's a verb, is there. Whatever is not from faith. But that's a that's not a grammatically independent idea. If I said whatever is not from faith, you're like, what? <laughs> whatever is not from faith is what? Is sin, Romans 14.23. That entire clause, whatever is not from faith, is a, it's actually a relative clause, or we can call it a noun clause, that is functioning as the subject of the stated being verb there is. Whatever is not of faith, that idea is sin. So that's a noun clause. A subordinate clause may also function as an adjectival clause, where it modifies a noun or pronoun, just like a single adjective would do. 1 John 2.17, the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see, I've underlined this relative clause here, who does the will of God. It's a clause because it has a verb there, does, in this case. But this entire relative clause, who does the will of God, is modifying what word? In the sentence. One. Yeah, the one, which is the subject. It's modifying the subject. The one. What one? The one who does the will of God lives forever, John says. Not just anyone, but the one who does the will of God. Very important adjectival clause. And we should know how it's functioning. Thirdly, a subordinate clause may function as an adverbial clause. What do adverbs do? They modify Verbs, they add to verbs. And so here's an example from Mark 138. Jesus said to his disciples, let us go somewhere else so that I may preach there also. Well, we have a couple clauses here. If Jesus says, let us go somewhere else, is that an independent or dependent clause? Uh... Is that a standalone thought? What about if he says, so that I may preach there also? If he says, so that I may preach there also, that's certainly a dependent clause. What do you mean, so that I may preach there also? If he just says, let us go somewhere else, that's a standalone thought. Now, I understand uh, that Jesus isn't just saying, let us go somewhere else. He's saying, let us go somewhere else so that, and he gives you the reason for this or the purpose. However, grammatically, I'm saying, I'm not saying that, dependent clauses are any less relevant, any less important 
We're not saying that, but we are saying grammatically they are subordinate to the main clause. So let us go somewhere else as the main clause so that I may preach there also. It is an adverbial clause because it is modifying this verb, go. Jesus is telling you the purpose for which we must go somewhere else so that I may preach there also. So subordinate clauses may function in a variety of ways as a noun clause, an adjectival clause, or adverbial clause. Adverbial clauses can modify a verb in a wide variety of ways. So anytime you come to an adverbial clause, you identify a adverbial clause, you want to ask, how exactly is this clause modifying the verb? In the previous example, it was a purpose, but there are many different examples we could, we could give you, and I've listed many uh, or several of those up there, but this is by no means exhaustive. I'm simply wanting to challenge you to realize that there's a lot of thought that needs to go into our Bible study. So again, Pastor, this is tedious. This is technical. This is TMI. Why are we doing this? Well, I'm not expecting you to become an expert in this overnight. If you like this kind of stuff, you'll be the better for it. But I, I hope that, again, by showing you this, number one, you can understand when I come to the Word of God, I'm being very intentional when I look at it. I'm not just saying, this is what hit me off the page. This is the way I was feeling. This was my sentiment for the day. Not at all. Okay? I'm interested in the authorial intent. Because Scripture, as God designed it, is orderly. And there's an authorial intent. And that is the goal. That's what we're after. It's not, how did it speak to you? What does it mean to you? But first, what does it say What does it mean? And then, what does it mean for you as an application? So these are ways of paying attention at least to the things that you and I as Bible students endeavoring to diligently understand the word and rightly divide the scriptures should pay careful attention to understand. If this is intimidating, that's okay. Nobody said you have to be an expert today and you've got to pass the exam right today, but you need to know what you need to work on. And so maybe this will provoke you to think more uh, deliberately and carefully about some of these words and clauses and phrases in Scripture. They have purposes there. All the words there have a purpose. God put them there for a reason. Let's explore the reason. So when it comes to main and subordinate clauses, how can we learn to analyze each clause in our text? Well, here's a simple three-point approach you should take. First of all, locate clauses. How do we locate clauses? What's in a clause? It's a group of words containing a verb, so find verbs. And you will isolate these clauses in terms of the verbs there in your text. So after you've located the clauses, classify each clause as either independent or dependent. Very important, because you want to see what is the main idea. And then, of course, after you've done that, determine the relationship of any depending clause to the rest of the sentence. And there's a treasure of meaning to be found in doing so. Right? So that's how we approach analyzing each clause in our text. So now let's try to be a little practical here. We want to understand how practical this is, how meaningful this is. And let's consider a very well-known sentence in Scripture, arguably the most well-known, John 3.16. And if you'd like, on the back of your outline... I actually pulled a page from a syllabus I used when I last taught this course, and it just has a case study out of John 3.16 of 
grammatical analysis. So John 3.16, let's first of all locate the clauses in this very well-loved text of scripture. The first clause we have is, for God so loved the world. And if you're aware of diagramming, sentence diagramming, what I'm going to do up here is basically block diagram this. Over to the far left margin, I have what in this sentence would be our main clause. For God so loved the world. This is the main clause. God is the subject. Loved is the verb. That he gave his only begotten son. This is the next clause. Gave being the next verb here. And what is the function grammatically of this clause that he gave his only begotten son? What is that telling you in relation to God's love? He gave his son... All right, he's telling you the main idea is he loved the world. A lot. A lot, yes. And here's how much he gave his son. So this is, a, I believe, a result clause. He's saying God loved the world in this way. That, with the result that, he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. Now, by the way, whoever believes in him is actually its own clause, but this would be a noun clause, all right? It's a relative clause, and it's telling you who, it's the subject of this verb, shall not perish, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. But what is this entire dependent clause, how, what does it have to do with the previous clause? That he gave his only begotten son. Well, it's giving you the purpose that God gave his only begotten son. He gave his son for the purpose that in order that whoever believes in his only begotten son shall not perish. And now notice, but have eternal life. By the way, there's an ellipsis here, that relative clause, whoever believes in him, would also be the subject of this subordinate clause, but have eternal life. We could read this, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. What's the function of this final clause? Well, it's even the conjunction itself, but is introducing a contrast. This is a contrastive clause. It's a contrastive idea. And so what I've done for you in your outline, if you look at that, is I've, I've given you the breakdown of the sentence structure here in terms of the clause. We have the main clause and then these subordinate clauses that modify it. But I've also given you an analysis of all the grammatical elements. So what we want to do is when we're analyzing a text grammatically is we want to first analyze the sentence structure in terms of the clauses, main or subordinate. We've just done that. Kind of got the big picture idea. But then what I would do is I would want to analyze every word of each clause. And this is where we get down to some of the fine details. And of course, the more you do this, the quicker you get to do it, and it becomes a second nature to you. But we could take all of the words in John 3.16 in this text here, and we could, you could see here I've given you the grammatical function for all those words, including the very first subordinating conjunction 4 that is tying the statement in verse 16 here to what has come before in verses 14 and 15. And it's telling you that verse 16 is an explanation of those previous verses. That's very important. God is the subject who, who loves here. And the, the word so, by the way, is an adverb. And sometimes we think of that as 
how like oh so he loved the world so so much actually as an adverb this word is relating how god loved loved is the the verb expressing god's attitude toward the world the world is the direct object receiving god's love so that here's a subordinating conjunction indicating the result god loved the world with the result that this is what he did this is how he demonstrates his love he the, the subject referring back to God, God is the antecedent, he is a pronoun, right? Gave, this is God's action, the result of his love, it's another verb, his, pronoun referring back to God again, and his relation, indicating his relationship to his son, his only begotten. This is an adjective modifying, monogenes in the Greek, it's a very special word, it's telling us this one-of-a-kind, unique son. His only begotten son, this tells us what God gave, which is really who God gave. And I could go on, but I think you see how you could take a very familiar text of Scripture and if you will analyze the sentence structure in terms of the clauses and then break down the elements, you know, analyze every word in terms of its clause, you will reward yourself greatly and you will be better equipped to teach and explain what it is you're studying to others. Let me just show you here. Here's a line diagram, by the way, of the same text, John 3.16. I like line diagrams, and they're, they seem to be a little bit more detailed, but you could use a block diagram or a line diagram. Sometimes people find line diagrams a little intimidating if you're not aware of all the parts of speech and how they function and all. But I'm just saying, for me, visually, that really helps if I'm analyzing a text. I'll give you just one more example just briefly. We've only got a couple minutes here. But First Peter... Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Here's how I would block diagram this text. Okay? And so we want to do that in terms of the clauses. The first clause is, and though you have not seen him. There's a verb there. You you haven't seen. Not is actually an adverb uh, negating the action seen. You love him. Now here's another clause. And by the way, if you're looking at the Greek here, you have an advantage because you would know that have not seen, have seen up there in the first line is actually a participle. And so it's cluing me, this probably isn't the main idea, but when I get to you love him, this agapao, this is a, a verb. This is the main verb. So that's the main idea. So how is, and though you have not seen him, modifying the main clause, you love him? Well, it's giving us a concession. It's saying despite the fact that you haven't seen him, you love him. So I put love him, by the way, all the way over to the far left margins. If you're block diagramming on a computer, it's easier because you can move a line, a clause, left or right on the margins depending on what it's modifying. And though you do not see him now. Now this should be easy because it's parallel to the first clause. This is also concessive. But it's modifying, um, we're going to see the next main clause. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, this is contrast, Peter is contrasting believing with not seeing. You rejoice greatly, or you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is the second main clause. And it's modified by the two previous subordinate clauses there, the concessive and contrastive. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Obtaining is a, another participle, and this is indicating the result you are greatly rejoicing with the result that even right now, in a very real sense, 
you're already experiencing the joys of the salvation that God has in store for you. So one might certainly insist that that what we're doing here is too technical and claim this is sort of a cut and dry, scholastic, overly intellectual approach to the Bible, as if to say there were no spiritual benefit to be gained from a grammatical analysis of Scripture. But I hope that you see this, and this is really the point of today's lesson. I want you to realize how devotional a grammatical approach to Scripture can be. It, it really forces us as the interpreter to more carefully consider each minute detail which comprises the original author's thought. And if you will do that, you will find that this kind of a study is its own reward. So with that, I'm out of time. Well, let's pray. And we'll come back next week.